You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer with York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. COVID-19 has affected everyone all over the globe. On today's edition of The Feed, conversations from Europe, the United States, and right here at home. But we begin with the big picture. And I'm joined now by travel industry expert Catherine Folliott, editor at Travel Week, Canada's travel trade news, and so much more. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us on The Feed. Thank you so much, Anne. It's great to be here. So what is Travel Week all about? Well, we are a, a news source for Canada's travel industry. So we go out, we have a print magazine, we have a website, and we have a, a, a email that goes out five times a week. And we just keep our readers, who are mainly Canada's travel agents, uh, informed of everything that is going on in the travel industry. And you must be very busy at this point trying to deal with the fallout from COVID-19. Let's talk about the impact that COVID-19 has had on Canada's travel industry. Yeah, sure. It's it's a very challenging time, and I know it's a challenging time for everyone, no matter what industry they're in. Um, travel obviously got hit very hard. It was March 13th when the warning came down from the federal government to avoid all non-essential travel anywhere. Um, this, of course, was unprecedented, and it was also the Friday before March break, and Canada's 24,000 travel agents leapt into action, and the airlines and the tour operators to get Canadians home. It's about a million Canadians, I understand, were brought home in those first couple weeks in, in mid-March. Uh, and so, and, and after that, once everybody got home, there's just been cancellations as all the airlines have to keep sort of moving their startup dates again and again because nobody knows when the restrictions are going to get lifted. Um, and so uh, travel agents are keeping busy with that. And, and it's just a financial hit as well. So they're taking advantage of, of a lot of the government financial assistance programs, the wage subsidy, that kind of thing. The airlines are also using those programs and the tour operators. So it, it's a very tough time. I, I read somewhere that the uh, the impact to the travel industry is nine times what the impact was from 9-11. So and obviously 9-11 was considerable, and, and so this is even more so. And so many players in the travel industry are big businesses and they're being brought to their knees as well. Yes, that's right. I mean, the airlines are just losing it. It's astounding when you read, you know, they're just losing millions and millions a day. They did have to do some layoffs. All of them did. Air Canada, WestJet, Transat, something, they all did layoffs, but then they're all able to bring their employees back onto the payroll, thank goodness, because of the uh, wage subsidy program, which is great. But, um, but, yeah, these are, you know, I think a lot of people think of travel as being sort of a, you know, it's, it's very fun. Everybody loves to travel, and whether it's for business or, or vacation, it's, it's a very uh, sort of fun part of life, but it's also very big business. And, uh, you know, the trickle-down effect from everybody who's impacted by, by travel, even, you know, obviously Ontario's, you know, restaurants and all that kind of thing, they, they take a large portion of, of, of their revenue from, you know, visitors who come to Ontario, who come to Canada. So it, it, it's very, uh, it's quite a trickle-down. Catherine, is recovery possible? We, I think, I guess like a lot of industries, we sort of joke, we wish we had a crystal ball. It certainly is, and it's just a question. It's, it's not if, it's when. So we will get, travel will, you know, be back. The government, rightfully so, is, is being extremely cautious, and, uh, you know, and Canadians also are, are very much doing exactly what they're supposed to do. They're staying home, they're sheltering in place, they're not traveling, and, and so everybody's, you know, doing what they need to do. And I think it's just the travel industry is sort of waiting to see when those restrictions will be lifted. So recovery is possible. 
but it, it's tough for the travel industry because, it, you know, there's no curbside pickup for travel. There's no, you know, like some uh, stores and restaurants can get some extra revenue coming in from that sort of thing. Not much, but a little bit. But with travel, it's very all or nothing. People can either travel or they can't. Um, and it's also so interconnected, obviously, on a global scale. You, you know, there's no sense in having flights to a country that hasn't opened its borders yet. So everybody, it's like a puzzle that all kind of has to come together all at once. And it's, as I always sort of think, as, as crazy as it was to shut down travel, it's going to be even more uh, interesting to sort of op- open it back up because it re- requires a lot of things to happen all at once. You have a lot of experience. You've been in the business for more than 25 years. You've gone through 9-11. You've gone through SARS. You've gone through all kinds of things that have impacted the travel industry. So what do you think the big changes will be or have to be in order to help with the recovery of the travel industry? Well, I think it's funny. It sort of came in waves. After all the cancellations came all the predictions. Everybody's sort of looking ahead because everybody does want to know what what that's going to look like. I think with airlines, I hope everybody's getting used to masks because I think we're going to be seeing a lot of masks. And I think that makes people feel better. They've got a lot of peace of mind when they see, you know, other people uh, in, in the airplane with masks on as well. Um, there's going to be, you know, I think for some airlines, including our Canada, there's mandatory temperature checks, which gets really tricky because if you're traveling with a family, kids seem to get fevers at the drop of a hat. Um, you know, people can get fevers for whatever reason, but it's all the things that we have to do to sort of plan a trip and the idea that, you know, if you got to the airport and you happen to have a fever, then you may be denied boarding. That's disheartening and that's really tough, but I think to get peace of mind, that that's sort of what a lot of airlines are looking at. There's the whole debate about, you know, do we keep middle seats empty on the airplanes? Uh, a lot of passengers, I think, would like that extra space for the social distancing, but I think the airlines for that one, they're kind of pushing back saying, look, you know, we're already taking a huge financial hit here. We can't really afford to fly our planes, you know, one-third empty on purpose as we're, you know, we, we appreciate the importance of health and safety, but we can't really do that, so we'll wait and see. Um, with that, I've heard some crazy stuff. Like I know Ryanair, one of the low-cost carriers in Europe, they're sort of going to get started again with some flights. But they've said, you know, no lineups for the bathrooms at the back of the plane because people are just sort of packed in there too closely. So things like little things like that that people wouldn't have really thought about. The airports will have to be a little bit different, obviously, with all the social distancing. The resorts, the cruise lines, it's um, it's going to be very different. But I think travel companies have basically said the cost of doing all this, of, of retrofitting our travel products, is high. But the cost of not doing it is even higher. So they're they're just they're going to do it. Well put. Earlier this week, the World Travel and Tourism Council out of London unveiled global worldwide measures for our post-COVID-19 planet, if you will. So the new safe travels yeah. protocols. Give us an overview of what that entailed. Yeah, the WTTC is, uh, they've got the backing of a lot of the different sectors of the industry. They work with IATA, which is sort of the organization that represents all the world's, or most of the world's airlines. They work with CLIA, which represents most of the, uh, the biggest cruise lines that we're familiar with. So they're not, I don't think that they're a set of guidelines that they came out with. I don't think it's binding in any way, but I think that the industry is sort of looking to sort of the leaders to sort of, you know, come up with a, a, some protocols that everybody can get behind because I think the travel industry realizes that this is on a global scale and, and that, you know, people are going to want to see some sort of streamlined guidelines that everybody can follow. So, so far they've come out with guidelines for, I believe it was hotels and also for retail, I guess maybe within, you know, the, the hotels and that kind of thing. Um, and so that's sort of what we would all expect. It's the social distancing, it's, it's retraining of staff, it's masks, it's, you know, nothing too surprising there. Um, and then they said that they're going to be working on guidelines for the aviation and for cruise lines, and they'll be coming in the near future. And I think those will be the ones that people are really looking at because I think it's long-haul air travel and also 
cruise lines, cruise ships, which were very much in the news and in, in the beginning of weeks of all this, um, that's the ones that people are going to be really uh, looking for. So you've given us a sense of what the new travel experience could be. Let's talk about the new traveler. Are they going to be reluctant to start traveling again? Are they going to want to sort of stick close to home or get as far away from it as possible? What, <laughs> what will the new traveler look like and what were, will his or her attitude be? Yeah, I think that it, it, as much as, uh, I don't know about you, but when I talk to friends and family, there's a very wide range of how people feel about all these different safety measures that we're doing now for the pandemic. Some people are, you know, very strictly staying at home, never going out. You know, seven days a week goes by, they only order their groceries online, and, and they're doing that. Other people go out once a week to get groceries, and they wear their mask, and they do the social distancing. So everybody sort of got a different comfort level, and I think that we will see that with travel as well. I think we will see, you know, as you said, some, some people will just be very hesitant to travel at all. They will just not be traveling. Those people may not have been big travelers even before this started, and so this may just be, you know, a, a continuation of sort of their, their usual patterns. We've got the road warriors who are the business travelers who will be, you know, within reason back out there as soon as possible. And uh, we've also got the people who I think who, I think they see that there will be sort of a, a middle ground, a common sense middle ground that we strike where it's, you know, people are knowing they have confidence in the health and safety protocols from the airlines and the cruise ships and the hotels. And they also know that these companies do need to stay in business. If we want to continue traveling, we can't have travel come to a complete halt. Um, and so I think we're going to find that nice middle ground. I think we just need to take these first baby steps and get everybody feeling used to the idea of traveling again. So I think the, the new traveler is going to be, you know, a little bit wary when somebody bumps up against them in the uh, in the line to check out at their hotel and that kind of thing. But I think it, it's like after 9-11. We had a whole bunch of new measures after 9-11, and uh, they seemed very, very strict at first, and we all got used to them, and I think that will happen with this as well. Catherine, do you think it will be costlier to travel once everything is back up and running? That's an interesting, because that goes back to with the middle seat in the airplanes that I think everybody sort of assumed that once travel happens again, once the borders open up and the travel restrictions are lifted, that it's going to be this, you know, great low fares because the airlines are so, you know, interested in getting people to, to travel again. But the airlines have said, look, if you need us to keep these middle seats empty, then be prepared for airfares to be higher than usual because, you know, we've got to make up the loss somehow for flying with these empty seats. So it's those kind of if this, then that kind of situations where everybody's just trying to figure this out, I think that we will see some great promotions to get people traveling again. I think we're going to see some very good sale prices because I think part of it is even if, you know, travel companies are taking such a financial hit right now and they don't want to come out with fire sale kind of very low rates, but on the other hand, they just need the, the public to start traveling again. If that's the nudge that people need to get some get some good deals out there, then I think that that's what they're going to do. I've been peeking at your website just about every day. You have a top <laughs> news story every day, and one of thing that Great. caught my uh, attention and my imagination was the fact that, for instance, river cruises, people are, are booking for the year 2022. Are we going to have to wait that long? You know what? I, I certainly hope not. It's funny. It's, it's wonderful. I, I agree that we've certainly... Uh, People are booking cruises, and I think, and, and other travel as well. And I think people might be surprised by that, especially for cruising. That obviously cruising uh, was was so much in the public eye um, with with some of the ships that couldn't dock and the quarantining. But people are, you know, especially cruising has a very loyal following, um, and and people are booking. Um, I certainly don't think that I know what you mean that. You know, the bookings have opened up for 20, 2021, 2022, and beyond. Cruising does typically have a very, quite a long booking window. So that's not unusual for the cruise lines to have already opened up those bookings. I do think that especially the cruise lines, because the cruise lines 
are under like a, the ones that are based in the U.S., once the CDC lists a no-sale order, then they can start sailing again. You know, the CDC will obviously proceed with the utmost caution. I, do, I get the feeling that the cruise lines are kind of assuming that, you know, certainly this summer is just completely off the table. I think they're hoping to sort of maybe have some of the Caribbean cruises happen again in the fall winter. Um, it all depends on, on the CDC and the travel restrictions. So definitely people are booking for 2021, 2022. There are some great deals out there, and uh, and I think people just they just want a vacation, so they just want something to look forward to. So it, uh, I, I think they are booking for that, and, and that's a great thing. Boy, you know your stuff. Just before we go, is there the possibility that travel will once again become a pleasure? Oh, I can't wait. It certainly will. It's it's one of those things I think that people might like to complain about their their trip or the airline or the hotel did this and I didn't like it or anything. We all like to, to gross and complain once in a while about parts of our trip. But overall, almost all of us just adore travel. And it's just, whether it's for, for work or for vacation, it's something that feeds the soul. And, and we certainly do need a vacation after all of this. And uh, I, for one, just I, I can't wait to get back to it. And, uh, and I know that most Canadians are just so excited to get back into travel. So, yes, it definitely will be a pleasure again. You can count me in on that one. <laughs> Uh, Catherine, if people want to find out more, if they want to head to your website uh, or pick up a magazine, how do they go about doing that? So we are, we're a trade uh, publication, so we go out to travel agencies across Canada and also the airlines and the tour operators and all that sort of thing. So we're sort of uh, all about the, the, the business of travel, but people can certainly uh, go to our website, which is travelweek.ca, and get uh, the inside scoop on what the industry's doing. And we uh, also have our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, emails that come out with sort of our news package, and they could uh, they could check those out as well. Really appreciate you giving us a look at the big picture, the global picture. Who knew how complicated and connected the travel industry is around the world? It really is quite incredible. Catherine Folliott, editor at Travel Week, thanks for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much, Anne. It was great. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. We continue to focus on the virus that has changed everyone's world. Jim Lang with the day-to-day in Montreal. Well, COVID-19 has affected a lot of people here in the region and the GTA, but it's also affected a lot of people around the world and elsewhere in Canada. Possibly the hardest-hit area of the country is Montreal. Thrilled to be speaking to a longtime friend and a successful business person and sobriety coach, Bob Marier, a longtime Montreal resident, to talk more about how COVID-19 is affecting Quebec. Bob, how are you? Good morning, Jim. I'm good. Good to hear from you. Well, it's good to hear from you. Before we get to your personal journey with COVID-19, you've lived in Montreal a long time. Your family has deep roots in Montreal and Quebec. Have you seen anything like what's happened to the city in that area of Quebec is what's happened with COVID-19? No, this is like, you know, I think it, it, it could put it in perspective. I live downtown in the Atwater Market area. Very busy area. I live near a metro. There's usually thousands of people walking by my house daily. And it's absolutely, it, it's been quiet. It's, there's nobody. I'm looking out this morning. There would be lots of people. There's huge offices near me. So I've never seen anything like this, uh, not even close to this. And for the amount of time, even with, I think the weather's had something to do with it. When there's been a few nice days, some people have popped up. But they're taking it pretty seriously here. And as a, as a point of view, I've been to Toronto on business last week. I flew in for the day and stuff, and I was like, it's not as severe as it is in Quebec. So, And then Quebec has the highest numbers. <laughs> I don't understand why, but uh, 
would seem to be taking it a lot more seriously here, in my opinion. And Bob, to me, that's difficult. For my time living there and working there, I, I've never seen a city more social and more sociable than Montreal. And for people to not socialize, not be together, is against everything that's part of the Quebecois DNA. Well, it seems to be, again, um, where I live, and, uh, you know, it's, a, it's definitely a busy place. Like, my neighbors are young people from Ontario. They live next door to me. They're Ontario plates on their cars. And they've had, like, the social distancing, the front of their home has, has sort of a balcony around it and stuff. And they've had some, they've had some people come over and the, the police stop quickly and say, Hey, you're not allowed to do this. You got to keep it moving around, even though they're sitting, you know, 10 feet apart around chair on chairs. And again, I think Montreal is, you know, the, the island of Montreal and the numbers are staggering that are coming out of it. Like, you know, watch the national news. It looks like Montreal is the New York City of, uh, of Canada. I, I can honestly tell you, I live the, the, the giant Georges uh, Etienne Cartier Park is right next to my house. That would usually be bustling. It's quiet. You know, I go for a walk with the dogs. There's nobody there. So I think that it's, it, I don't understand the numbers, rather saying that. I don't understand how they're working that way. But, uh, and, you know, everyone's reporting the same things to me. I have a big family and the baby of six kids. I haven't got together with my family in two, two and a half months. You know, and they all live in virtually, we could be together in minutes, and we just don't, it's it's not happening. Now, you have a personal connection to COVID-19. You had tested negative, Bob, and then lo and behold, you got tested again, and then you had it. Yeah, tested negative twice, sick like I've never been, sick uh, 12 days in bed. I was tested, I flew back, you know, I, I do have a place in Florida, so I live in Miami most of the time in the winter, and I had been, when they did the tracking on me, on March 1st, I'd flown from Montreal to Chicago, Chicago, Los Angeles. And then on the 3rd, I'd flown from Los Angeles to Houston, worked in Houston. I was only there for a night, and then Houston back to Miami. And then I came home on the 16th, Monday the 16th. So, you know, ostensibly 10 weeks ago uh, yesterday. I wasn't feeling good when I flew home. Uh, there was nobody on the Air Canada flight from Miami to Montreal. There was less than a dozen people on that plane. I was one of two people in business class. And I remember thinking to myself, like, is it psychosomatic? I feel a little off. They took my temperature upon landing at the airport. That's Monday, Monday the 16th. Um, and it was changed. I knew when I got off the plane, you usually get out of an international terminal and there's people. It was dead quiet other than film crews and people taking your temperature with those, uh, you know, infrared. Uh, and I had a bit of a temperature and they said, well, here's the card. Here's the number. Call this number. And in the area I'm in, I was told to go to the Hotel Zur Hospital, which is up on the mountain next to the Gulf Stadium and given a test. When I went there, the test was applied to me. It's very uncomfortable. And I, I waited. I said, you should have an answer in two days. It took four. And I got an answer saying it's negative. You have nothing to worry about. At this point, I'm completely sick. I'm running a fever. I have one of those ear thermometers. And I'm running a fever over 102. Um, I'm old enough to remember. I don't know what Celsius is on it. I like only have on that, but I was very hot. 102 is not good, Bob. No, it went. It gets better. So on the Sunday, they call back the CLSC, which is the services that do the, uh, you know, like outside doctoring. It's a, you have the same thing in Ontario, which is their version here of the CLSC. They call me back, and I said, I'm still sick. Um, my breathing's not being affected, but everything else is. I'm not eating. I'm running a high fever, and I've got a terrible sore throat. They come in for a second test, do it. This time it's, you know, 24 hours later, I get a report, negative. I'm still sick. I said, okay, well, whatever I've got. 
I'm having a hard time walking up my stairs. There's six stairs to come upstairs. Uh, it's not a big uh, staircase, and I'm having a hard time at night. I'm sweating, and I'm hot, and I have a king-size bed, and I'm, like, sleeping in quadrants. And the making of that bed the next day is uh, that's all I can do and then pass out. I was sleeping 18 hours a day, and I was still... And my family was bringing food and dropping everything at the door. Everything was doing, you know, my uh, my brother Peter's kids are great because they're constantly, uh, the younger people were doing all the work for the older ones taking care of all the business that needed to be done for food and stuff. And a doctor called me back. So now we're now in April. It's two weeks later, all right? I'm starting to feel a little bit better. I'm weak. I've lost 17 pounds. Like I weigh myself every day. And I'm like, oh, God, this doesn't feel well. And then last week, on Thursday, not be two weeks this week, uh, I don't remember the date, they said, come in for a blood test. Came in for the blood test. It was on a Thursday morning. On a Saturday morning, the same infectious disease doctors called the veteran offices and said, we need you to go do a third COVID test up to the hospital. Now you go up to the hospital, there's nobody there. You go in one direction, it's extremely well run. You don't see another person other than the people there. They're, you're, you're basically taking a bath of, of the gels there, of the, uh, the Purell the, stuff. Infection gels, yeah. <laughs> and you're taking a bath in it. At every point, you're meeting guys in full hazmat suits. You're realizing you're really taking it like it's really serious now. The Monday morning, negative test. Doctor calls. You have the antibodies. You have it. So I was like, oh, so I'm not, uh, you know, it was almost a relief. And it sort of was like, now I think I'm invincible, but I'm not. I'm still wearing a mask when I go out. I'm still doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. I have lots of gloves and stuff. But it makes me feel that understanding. I've never had a cold that psychologically played with me. I would go to bed at night thinking I'm like, a, I was thing and my you know rest my mother's soul she would say like you know okay right the common cold you've got man cancer uh but this time i was really i was alone and i thought man i'm really sick and i kept getting negative tests i thought there was nothing wrong with me how do you feel now bob i feel wonderful now now i'm everything's back to normal i'm eating my appetites back it's been very very easy to deal with and again uh, the social distancing and everything else is still going on you know my brother works as you know he works in radio in, in montreal and uh, he does he's an essential service but he's six years old with a heart condition and a bad lung so he never quit smoking i've seen him he drives up in the driveway and uh, we'll sort of talk uh, quickly and then uh, he leaves that he's been well following the rules and i think if you speak to montreal as they're really trying to follow the rules and if as you are saying quebec the, the social and the way we we operate yeah but they're they're taking it seriously it's sort of almost inspiring as a man we never thought we could do it this way but they seem to be doing it very much and i think people are realizing this is the long haul and uh, even though it's I think the weather the last few days has been terrible. You know, we had a bit of snow last week, so people are getting, it's getting, it, this is all of Canada. It's all over the place. It's, we're getting a bit itchy to get back out there into our normal lives. I joke that I can lick a door handle now, but the reality <laughs> is, is uh, I have a, there's no, human nature is very interesting, Jamal. You know how many people tell me, you know, you can get it again, right? And my infectious disease doctor in Montreal, Dr. Portner, very well-known doctor, he tells me there's not one case in North America of someone getting it again. We don't have the data. It's a novel virus. There's so much data we don't know there's so many mistakes we're making that we're going to re- we're going to figure out but he goes we just need to be patient you know we're we're given we're being given a dose of humble pie in the reality that this pandemic can affect certainly can kill and certainly can do the numbers that it does 
also, now that I've had the antibodies test, and they've taken blood from me, they've taken two pints on two different occasions because they want my antibodies now, and I'm happy to help. But they're telling me, the doctors say to me that the, the, the only variable here is that we need to follow what we're doing until it's safe to not do it. And I believe that that's true. Like, even though I think that oh, somehow I'm precluded from it, I need to follow uh, to know that I'm doing right by everyone else, and I'm taking it seriously. Well, Bob, it's, it's great to hear you're healthy. Thank you for taking time to talk to us about it and give us a perspective in different parts of the country and the world. And uh, uh, be safe, be well, and uh, one day Montreal will be back to being the sociable city it is. Well, I'm pretty sure that will happen. I'm just, uh, I think that with where we're going to have challenges, I leave my, is as the weather gets better, then people are going to start to say, okay, what are we doing here? But uh, I think we should be proud of the way we've behaved, especially if we're looking at the unmitigated shit show that's going on next door. We should be, you know, it's not, nothing's perfect, yep. but we're doing, doing ourselves proud, and I think we should remember that. I'm Ann Romer. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Galit Solomon takes us to Belgium. Sophie, I'd like to welcome you to The Feed. Thank you very much for welcoming me. I'm happy to talk with you today. And we're happy to speak with you as well. Obviously, COVID-19 has had an impact on people all around the world, yourself included. You're in Belgium. Whereabouts in Belgium are you? I'm living in Brussels, pretty close to the center. All right. And you had mentioned that it was around March when COVID-19 started impacting life for you in Brussels. Tell us about that and that initial moment. Yes, indeed. On 6th of March, uh, after the holidays that we had, our colleagues coming back from Italy obviously uh, brought uh, with them the virus, and we had the first case in the office. Since I'm taking some medicine impacting my immune system, I was asked to stay at home one week before the national lockdown. I see. Okay, so you had a colleague within the office who had contracted COVID-19. Yes, exactly. Okay. Once they discovered, of course, they identified the people who had uh, some weaknesses or some health issues and asked them to telework as from 6th of March. I see. Is it a big office? Are there a lot of people in your office? It is an extremely big office. Mm-hmm. I'm working for the European institution, so we are quite a thousand and from what I understand, your family has been impacted as well, right? You said your son and uh, and your husband? Yes, indeed. Uh, my son uh, was supposed to leave on the 5th of March to Bulgaria for a 10-month project, a European project. And, of course, he could not leave. Uh, the plane was cancelled. And the uh, association where he was supposed to go and work was starting also the lockdown, so he was asked to stay in Brussels. Mm. Unfortunately, he ended his study uh, just a few months before, so he's without uh, any activity at the moment. Mm. He is, uh, well, doing things that he likes, but nothing uh, very concrete for work or for school. Uh, that's an issue because we don't know how long this will last still, and we are trying to find solutions at the moment for, for him. And Sophie, from what I understand, your husband as well has been affected. Can you tell us how? So just before the COVID, he had done some medical exams for his kidneys because he was having some problem, and the result of those exams just uh, arrived mid-March. Uh, he had to be uh, operated immediately. There was an emergency. And uh, in his problem, he's supposed to have a second intervention, which has been now postponed twice since it's less urgent than the first one, uh, but still it needs to happen. But they give priority to COVID-19 uh, patients mm-hmm. right now. 
and uh, well, we are waiting. Uh, normally now it's planned for end of May, but the situation is evolving every day, so we are not sure this will happen. We are hoping it will happen because he's suffering a bit, and uh, well, we would like this uh, suffering to end, of course. I'm very curious about life in Brussels right now, because I know here in York region where we all live and work, you know, we've we've experienced a certain level of a shutdown to the economy. Um, you know, we can't really visit with relatives. What's uh, what's the situation like for you in Brussels? Well, for me, it's slightly different now from other people because uh, due to my personal uh, situation, we don't go out at all. Mm. Uh, we just get delivered for everything. We try to avoid uh, any, all the possible risk. But for the other people, since Monday, shops have opened again, of course, with the social distancing measures. And since Sunday, because it was Mother's Day here in Brussels, uh, we were allowed to see four persons. Uh, of course, we didn't, but uh, most of our friends and relatives started to see other people. So uh, life is slowly coming back in the streets and shops are slowly opening. No restaurant, no bar, of course. We have uh, measures which are quite strict, like anywhere else in, in Europe and probably the world. Uh, but on my, on my personal experience, I cannot tell you more because I don't go out. I don't see people. Mm. Uh, I, I, I don't know, for example, I know only from, from the news, of course, that uh, shops have been extremely busy since they opened and, and things like this. And everybody is afraid, of course, of, uh, of the second wave. So we are in expectation. Does it concern you at all after, you know, being in isolation for such a long time that things are starting to get back to this, this new norm? Are you concerned about that? Of course, I am uh, very concerned, especially because my children have no health issues, so they could start going out, they could start a little bit, you know, but we are asking them for the moment not to do because if they have to come back home afterwards, they may affect us, uh, me with my autoimmune sickness and my husband with his kidney problem. So for the moment, we feel like, uh, you know, they have been already locked down for two months and we impose them again and they start seeing their friend going out, so it's a bit of kind of difficult, especially for them and for us, of course, as parents to to see, you know, these young people living this kind of life. I mean, they've been already two months uh, without going out. My daughter celebrated, celebrated her 80th birthday in confinement, which was, uh, of course, not pleasant. Mm. So, yeah, it's a bit frustrating. And, uh, of course, we are happy not to be affected directly by COVID because for the moment we didn't and we hope it will continue. Right. But uh, we try to, to remain positive and but of course it, it changes the life. Eh? That, of that, course. That's for sure. Everyone's life, right? I'd like to wrap up with this question. In a year from now, where would you like to see yourself and your neighbors and your friends be when it comes to COVID-19? Well, I wish that there would be an impact, a positive impact of this COVID-19 on the way people behave uh, with solidarity and with, uh, you know, uh, human behaviors. I hope people will understand something from that negative experience and it will turn into something positive. And of course, I hope that we can get back to a normal life, travel, see our families abroad, because we cannot even imagine that we will not be able to see them for mm. more months. It's already very difficult for us not to see our family. 
part of our family is in France, the other part is in Greece. So uh, in Belgium, we hardly, we have a lot of friends, but we don't have family, so it's a bit complicated. Yeah, travel would be very meaningful, I'm sure. Yeah, especially, not only for me, actually, because I'm here in Brussels, you have an international community, there are lots of of people uh, that come from abroad, so we are almost all in the same boat. At least people working in my office, uh, they, they are like me, their family are abroad, and, and that's extremely complicated for us. Okay. Also, it's, especially for the colleagues that get affected by COVID and lose someone, they cannot go to the funeral, so that's really something hard to accept, extremely hard to accept. Yeah, yeah. Sophie, I want to thank you for your time and for sharing your story with us. It really does mean a lot to us. Thank you. You're welcome. I hope everything goes well with all of you. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. We stay in Europe. Our next stop is England. Here's Amber Pay. Our next stop is over the pond to the UK. There have been more than 30,000 deaths related to COVID-19. In northwest England, just outside of Manchester, my best friend for about 40 years, Michaela Warmby, her husband and son live in a town called Bolton. They've been socially distancing since early March. How are you holding up, Michaela? Hey, Amber. We're doing great, thanks. And everybody's healthy? Well, okay. Yep, everybody's healthy. We're just doing what we're told by the government, keeping at home, staying at home, staying safe, protecting our NHS, protecting ourselves. How has life changed for you with COVID-19? Well, it's changed in the fact that you can't just nip out, go shopping, go see your friends, go to the pub, go out for dinner, stuff like that. So we schedule everything, really. We're only going out once a week to do our weekly shop and get our necessities, any medicines, anything we need. And we do that probably every Tuesday, so just stuff like that. Obviously, Ray's parents are elderly. They're in their 80s, so we try and see them just to bring them what they need because we're not allowing them out of the house. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. And when you do go to yeah. get all of your essential things, it, it, do you go out in masks and gloves? Are there a lot of people? That's what it looks like over here. No, because some do and some don't. We've not actually been told by the government that it's necessary to wear um, the PPE. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're saving all of that for the NHS, for the frontline workers, uh, because it's really, really hard to get, even for the government those regular people. Um, People are making their own masks, uh, doing gloves, but I just keep my social distancing. I just keep two meters apart, go in, do what I've got to do, come home, wash my hands. Are you disinfecting your groceries? Mm -hmm. Yep, everything like that. Just following, just being really safe like that. Luckily, we've all been okay. That's it, really. Just for clarity, NHS, that's the hospital. That is our, yeah, that's our hospitals, our healthcare, basically, yeah. That's the main thing in this country, obviously, because there's so many of us and we've had over 31,000 deaths and they didn't want to overwhelm the NHS. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the main thing that's been running through the whole thing. Yeah, just protect the NHS, protect the frontline workers by keeping our distance, by staying at home, not putting yourself in danger or your family members. When I talk about groceries, here we do have home delivery of groceries as well. Have you? Do you have that over there? Have you taken advantage of that? We do have that here, but for somebody like myself who is actually healthy and well and I can drive, 
I choose to not use that service and save it for the vulnerable, the elderly, the people that can't drive because, um, as you probably know, it's just so busy. Mm -hmm. That service is overwhelmed. So it just overwhelms. So I choose to just go out and do it because I am healthy and I'm safe. So now you are at home. There is you, your husband, Ray, and your son, Jack. Ray, has he been Mm -hmm. laid off or is he working from home? No, we're both self-employed. So Ray has been working uh, reduced hours because he works for a painting and decorating company. So obviously it's not doing as well as it would be, obviously with everything being shut down. But he is still doing some work. So he works about maybe three hours a day mm-hmm. from home. And yeah, obviously I'm not working. And Jack is a university graduate. So he's not working either at the moment. And you're a small business owner. You operate a, a pole dance exercise studio. And it must, it must have been devastating to close down uh, for the time being. How, how has that been? And how is the government helping you? Yeah, that's been really difficult. Obviously, all of us, like probably in Canada as well, all your gyms, your leisure centers, everything like that has been shut down. That's affected me, obviously, with my earnings. I'm not earning anything. But it's just, it is what it is, and we're just getting on with it day to day. And the government has helped. There have been schemes to help small businesses, sole traders like myself, uh, but it's just with your eligibility and things like that. I haven't actually been eligible for any grants or loans, Mm -hmm. but we're still managing okay. Yeah. Has your landlord been accommodating at all? He has been absolutely amazing. Yes, he's been wonderful. Um, I don't pay my rent. Oh, which that's is good. fabulous. It's a massive help. He's, he's put a stop to that. He said, whenever, you know, we get back, we'll sort something out. And Jack, your son, he's, he's finished university now. And I guess he was just ready about ready to start his career. Now he's at home uh-huh. with mom and dad. What would, uh-huh. what was he supposed to be doing now compared to what he's well, actually doing? To be fair, he's probably just been doing what he normally would have been doing. He's still been networking, sending out his CV to all graduate schemes that companies offer for for new graduates. That's still ongoing. He's done a few online interviews, phone interviews. It's just that he's 22 years old, so obviously he can't see his mates and go out to the pub and, you know, like they do. Devastating. Get together. (laughs) Yeah. But he's been really good, actually. He's been very, very good. They've not broke any of the rules, which is amazing, (laughs) um, which so many people have been doing of his age group. Right. He's not one of them. Well, thank you, Michaela. I wish you guys all the best. I miss you guys. Stay well. Uh, keep in touch and let us know how things are going. We miss you too. Will do, Amber. Take care. Afua Ba takes us now to South Florida for a check on how COVID-19 has changed the life of one real estate broker. COVID-19 has swept across the U.S., but the impact of the virus has varied between states. So joining me to chat today is Renee Smith uh, to tell me about how COVID-19 has affected the Sunshine State. Renee, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, I'm Happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Okay, so help the listeners know. Tell us where you are in Florida and what you do. I am located in the part of Florida that they call the Treasure Coast, which is in Port St. Lucie. Okay. And and what is it that you do um, in that part of Florida? What's your background? I am a realtor. 
I buy and help people buy, sell, and lease uh, their real estate. How has your personal and professional life changed since this pandemic came into the States? It has changed a lot. Let's start with the personal part. <laughs> my family actually, it has actually brought my family together a lot closer. Um, I, we seemed to take it for granted before, didn't call anyone, didn't keep in touch. Even though now that we're stuck at home, um, we're calling more often. And with all of this new technology with social media and we could video talk and video chat, we're doing a lot of more FaceTime, a lot more uh, apps that get us video talking. So personally, it actually has gotten my family back together uh, to, to, to finally find out what's going on. And I've had had some family that has uh, COVID because I have family that lives in New York and upstate, but they're all doing fine. And professionally, um, being that I'm a realtor, it has not um, affected the real estate market here in Florida and, and South Florida. I am still very heavily out there showing. I am considered a, uh essential worker. I don't. I think the workers that's out there in the stores and, and the nurses and the doctors are more essential than me. But I am out there helping people uh, buy, uh, still buying um, properties. As a matter of fact, I placed the offer yesterday, and we're still waiting to hear back from the seller. So um, I do have buyers out there, and when I go and show, I have a mask, I wear my gloves, I have all my sanitary items. Um, we've been showing properties that are vacant. We've been showing properties that um, have families in them, and we're just very aware of what we're doing. So um, it, it's still, it, we're still going. We're still going. There are still, but, you know, don't take it for granted. There are people that are unemployed, you know, and we're all out here as realtors even trying to help the homeless and trying to help the unemployed, but I'm still working. You know, I'm grateful mm -hmm. that I am, could say I am still working. First off, then, thank uh, God that your uh, family and your relatives that are upstate in New York, that they're doing well. How has the impact been on your friends and family, maybe hearing them speak, and has it been affecting them differently than how it has been affecting you? Mm, well, yes, um, I mean, I've had, I actually have neighbors who lost um, half of her family. She's lost her mother, her father, and her brother. Um, and she's not able to get in touch, you know, to go up there and, and go to a funeral. Um, and I'm finding that uh, I have friends. I just spoke to a friend yesterday. He lost his mother. But it wasn't to COVID, but the fact that he lost his mother the family can't get together like they normally do to have a funeral and, and, and have her rest in peace, you know. So mm -hmm. things like that I'm hearing from my uh, friends, um, family, um, they're, they're all just staying safe and staying home. They're still not comfortable with everything reopening and just running back out. None of us are. So we're, I, you know, I work from home. I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have office space that I could, set up and work through from my house because I used to go to the office all the time. Social butterfly. I like to, I'm, I'm a community advocate. I like to get involved with the community. I like to help whenever I'm available and can help. And so being home for the last two months um, and not being able to socialize and, and, and reach out like I was used to, my family I'm finding, um, we are all just helping each other the best way we can and just being there for each other. 
Oh, goodness. That's such um, it's good news that you're all, of course, coming together during this time. Uh, my sincere condolences to friends that have lost family members. I can't imagine how tough that must be, especially, of course, that they can't properly say goodbye because of these uh, special right, circumstances. Yeah. That, that's the biggest thing that I'm hearing from my friends um, lately. Yeah, they're, they're just, you know, some of their family members are just passing away and not anything to do with COVID, but not being able to just be there, you know, to, to have that final ending, you know, mm-hmm. that's the main thing that I'm hearing. But um, otherwise, people are really, we're just looking out for each other and helping each other. And, you know, those that are having those, you know, moments, we, we're trying to just be there for them. So reaching out, it, it just find, I just find it that we're reaching out a lot more than we used to. Don't take anything for granted ever. <laughs> Best advice you could give right now. Best advice you could give. How is life right now in Florida? Has COVID-19 impacted uh, the state of Florida severely as uh, compared to other states, or would you say it's moderate? Well, I'm here in Port, Port St. Lucie, um, which is St. Lucie County, which is close to Palm Beach. Broward and Miami-Dade, and those three counties were hit the hardest in the state as far as close to me. Um, there were curfews. Everything was shut down. Um, businesses were closed, but we were still able to get our groceries. Um, you know, we're just following the guidelines now. The businesses are slowly starting to open back up, um, and they're I I myself still feel that it's too soon because I listen to the CDC and the guidelines that are out there, and they say that we should actually be on a down curve and that, you know, it should be 14 days in that down curve, and I don't see that. Um, so I'm not sure if all the information that we're getting is all that transparent. Um, so I'm where they – I'm – you know, most of the folks that I talk to, we're, we're just still staying home. Um, I'm seeing slowly things open. Now, I'll go out down to, to the beach, not to the beach, we, well, the water beach. Uh, here where I live, we call it the jetty. And we could stay apart, and that's fine, but I don't do the big gatherings. And I see people coming out, and they're not coming out with masks, and I just don't think that's smart right now. Right. So I still think that people are... It's two messages that we're hearing, and it's very confusing, and it's very frustrating that the information is not coming out from one source as one thing for us to do. So I still feel that we should still stay home, and if we come out, come out because we have to, not because you want to, (laughs) and wear your mask and just be be aware of other people around you and – and stay to those stick to those guidelines. I just say stick to those guidelines because we don't have our testing yet. You know, we're still not testing correctly, and we need to have that testing and that tra- tracing and that treatment, and you know, isolate those and you know, get help help those in the, the nursing homes. We're still having a big issue with that. So, I think that there's still a lot more that we need to be doing and now is not the time to reopen everything so i'm i'm being very cautious and those are fair points those are absolutely fair points mm-hmm. um and then up until this point your overall thoughts on how the pandemic was handled in florida up until right up until this point that you're starting to see that these uh, restrictions are being eased i i have to be truthful i don't think it was handled well 
at all. There's no way the United States of America should be at one point almost 4 million people that have it. And when you look at the other countries, they're, they're below 250,000. And those numbers just are way skewed off. And that's because it wasn't handled correctly. And I just believe that if it was handled better, a lot more people would not be dying. And I just don't believe that it was handled right. And it's still not being handled right. That's why I'm being very cautious about just going out and listening to what's being told because I see it and I listen to the doctors. I listen to the doctors right now. And they're telling us to stay home, so I'm going to still stay home. And when I have to go out, use my mask and use my gloves and stay safe. And that is it. That's the best thing that you can do. Renee, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and and giving me your perspective of uh, how COVID-19 is affecting Florida and affecting you personally. But of course, continue to be well and continue uh, to stay safe, you and your family. And hopefully we will all get out of this all in one piece um, and hopefully closer together. Thank you. And you stay safe and same to you and everyone there in Canada. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. So many sectors are going to have to make huge changes post-COVID-19. Tina Cortez now with how businesses can prepare. Jason Merrithew is Senior Vice President with Marketplace Technology Company, Cognitive. Jason, thank you for joining us on The Feed. Thanks so much for having me here, Tina. So tell me a little bit about your work and how travel fits into it. So Cognitive is a, is a strategic marketplace company and, and loyalty program management company. So we obviously, we do a lot of uh, elements of the industry, of the loyalty industry, whether that is operating as an advisor to loyalty program companies, whether that is fulfilling and executing on travel components of those loyalty programs, or whether it's helping our, our partners improve yields on assets, whether that's airline uh, seats, hotel rooms, concert tickets, anything like that. We really hope work to optimize uh, companies' loyalty relationships with their customers or customer groups, and and travel is obviously a huge part of that. So tell me then how you think the travel industry will change after COVID nineteen. I mean, Tina, obviously this is a completely unprecedented time in the industry. So every business is every business is under an immense amount of pressure right now. Uh, I, I think that. I think that the, the industry is absolutely going to change. It's it's going to change uh, in in a lot of ways, but but I don't think anyone truly knows what that's going to be yet. I think the only thing that we're very certain about is that this is going to take some time. This is going to take some time to to build consumer confidence, to build consumer trust. But I think the thing that we're very confident in is that travel is going to recover. Travel is a huge part of our economy, obviously not just in tourism. Uh, but in mobility for the sake of, of globalized businesses, for transportation, for people visiting relatives and friends, the world wants to see travel come back strong. So we're, we're incredibly bullish on that. But we, but we do want to acknowledge that it is going to take a little, bit of, a little bit of time to figure out how to bring that back safely. So what do you think airlines, for example, have to do to make travelers feel comfortable again? You know, I think airlines are obviously having a very difficult time of it right now. They're incredibly visible. So I think the first thing that everyone comes to mind when they think of travel is they think of airlines. But I think that what I would encourage everyone to consider is it isn't just about airlines. 
you know, think about the number of constituents that you interact with on your every day, on an average trip to Cuba, for example. You might interact with airport staff, airport security, cabin crew, immigration staff, hotels, bus drivers, bartenders, and tour guides. All of these parties need a somewhat coordinated plan of action with respect to keep their tra- keeping their travelers safe. Otherwise, one weak link in the chain is going to bring down the entire experience. So when you look at airlines in particular, you know, we obviously, we work with a lot of airlines uh, from, from the loyalty program side of, of the business, and we're working with them to right now to, to help position themselves to recover in a very, very strong and sustainable way from this uh, crisis. But it isn't just about them. It's about a holistic industry-wide approach as to how we're going to ensure that travelers get back on the road safe isn't going to be about just airlines cleaning seats. It isn't just going to be about hotel sanitizing uh, check-in desks. One of those things is not going to bring customer confidence back. It's going to take a whole variety of actions. Now, earlier this week, the Prime Minister said they're going to be very careful about reopening any kind of international travel. How long do you think it's going to take before that international travel begins again? Your best guess. Yeah that's, yeah, that's a really difficult question. You know, I think what I think when we look at the progress of, of this disease and, and, you know, I, I always, I think it's the most prudent thing, obviously, to defer to, to experts and looking at how we're, how we're building this, this disease path through, through the economy that we have, we, we have right now, because it's, it's really doing a, a bit of a number on us in a, in an unprecedented way. So if we look out into the future of seeing, you know, when do we see travel recovering? When do we see international arrivals in Canada recovering? It's difficult, and I don't think it's me- I don't think it's measured in weeks. I think it's measured in months. I don't. I certainly don't think it's measured in years. But I think you're more realistically looking for a four to six month recovery of international arrivals that don't include some type of mandatory quarantine, which would effectively eliminate the tourism prospect or the business travel prospect of traveling to a different country. You know, if you look at the United Kingdom, for example, where you have a 14-day mandatory quarantine for all international arrivals, it's not very practical to go on a five-day holiday to Europe or or a 10-day holiday to Europe if you have to quarantine in a hotel room for your first 14 days, then go on your holiday, and then fly home where presumably you're going to have to quarantine for another 14 days. (laughs) <laughs> that's not a that, that's not a practical solution for tourism. So we're I don't think we're likely to see international travel return in the short term. Do you think there will be deals for travelers when we come out of this, or will it be if you want that seat to be empty next to you, we're going to charge you more for it? How do you think it's going to go? I certainly hope that that's not the perspective that that airlines take. I think that I think that they are focused equally on on customer safety and on returning to a viable business model. And I think that's important to understand the, the balance between the two. I don't think customers, particularly with, with how challenged Canadians are these days and how, how financially pressured every Canadian is with how the job market is running, with how the economy is running, I don't think it's a practical solution to just increase prices and sort of say, well, because we have to, because we're going to operate and because you want to travel, the prices are going to increase. I think they will have to find a balance. Because in order for there to be a recovery, there has to be demand. And if prices rise too high, obviously there will simply be no demand. <laughs> so I think that balancing act is going to take some time to, to shuffle out. And I certainly hope that the approach that airlines take is not just to increase prices to the, to the maximum extent that they possibly can um, to, to increase revenues. So I don't think that that's what they're going to be doing. 
So, Jason, if you could leave us with your final thoughts or advice for consumers, what can we see? What can we look forward to in the weeks and months ahead? I think there's a lot to look forward to. I think that, you know, I, I looked to a study that was done by the OECD recently that studied domestic tourism. And it actually showcases Canada as a huge beneficiary in the event of a domestic tourism boost to the tune of about 17 billion U.S. dollars over the performance of Canada's domestic tourism market last year. And that's because Canadians don't travel domestically all that much. We travel very well internationally, but we don't see as much of our own country. So I think that there's a lot to look forward to. I think there's a lot to look forward to an opportunity to travel domestically for visiting friends and families in our own countries, for traveling to visit our own sites within Canada. And I think that the most important thing that travelers want to do is make sure that they reach out to sources that they trust, whether that is through a marketplace and a travel program that is managed by by a company like Cognitive, for example, the, the President's Choice Travel Program, whether it's your local travel agent, whether it's your credit card loyalty program, whether it's an airline directly, it's important that you that you communicate effectively with a company that is looking to to preserve your best interests. And I think that it's that it's really important that you do that now more than ever. So I would encourage everybody to to spend the time, do the research, and make sure that they're making decisions with as much information as possible and and hopefully getting back out there as soon as it's safe to do so because there's a lot to do. Okay, Jason, then I've got one last question for you. Um, how do companies then connect with their consumers, connect with their clients, maintain that loyalty so that they do have it when we do come out of this? Yeah, and that's something that we're obviously having a lot of conversations with our partners, you know, whether that is whether that's the the broader loyalty industry outside of travel or whether that's specifically in travel as a as a loyalty management company we are we are very much in that space every day we're encouraging customers to to build programs to develop uh to develop ongoing communication through social media through emails through through communications from executives to to uh to their constituents, it's making sure that, that brands are communicating fully and effectively what they plan to do, what they are executing on, and how they are acting to keep travelers safe. And that's that's really the important thing here is to is to reach out to your to your staff, over communicate, over communicate to your customers, over communicate to your staff, and make sure that everyone knows what you're doing because with no information people's imaginations kind of run wild. You want to make sure that if you're a brand, you are very much keeping your customers informed. You're keeping your customers up to date with your newest thinking, even if it's, even if it's, uh, you know, this week wasn't so good. We'll move on to the next week and we're looking for something new. You know, informing people of what you're doing to, to advocate for them and to work for them is, is I think the most important thing that brands can do right now. Jason Matthew, Senior Vice President, Cognitive, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thanks a lot, Tina. For the very latest developments on COVID-19 and also exclusive updates from York Region's Medical Officer of Health, please go to 1059theregion.com. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.